The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. And as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are coming up on the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. It was announced in Kazakhstan back in 2013 by then new Chinese President Xi Jinping. At the time, no one really knew what this thing was going to be. And I'll say a decade later, we're still struggling to figure out what this thing actually is. And one of the things that we've been hearing over the past, say, year or so, is that the Belt and Road is dead, the Belt and Road is withering, the Belt and Road is in trouble. And that's certainly the narratives we see coming out of India, the United States, and certain parts of Europe. Let me just walk you guys through a little bit of the narratives and the discourse that are going on about the Belt and Road, especially, again, in the West. And this is by no means universal, but this is, I think, the prevailing perception that this thing is in trouble. Let's start with the Wall Street Journal's Shelby Holiday. She's a reporter there, and she summarized the widely held view that something has just gone terribly wrong with the BRI. Around the world, you can literally see how the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, has run into problems. International airports built with Chinese money are empty. Deepwater ports are underutilized. And construction on some transportation projects has been crawling. Some projects that are up and running have saddled poorer countries with billions of dollars worth of debt, which has prompted Belt and Road backlash in some places. And nowhere is that backlash happening more than in Italy. And this has been a particularly hot topic the past few weeks because both the prime minister, the new ruling party there, have made it clear that they want to get out. Georgia Maloney says she's had enough of the Belt and Road, but she's got a difficult balancing act that she's got to do, where on the one hand, she wants to exit the Belt and Road initiative, but at the same time, still keep China open for Italian companies. There are a lot of fiats that are sold in China. So she's got to balance those two, but it sparked a lot of coverage in Europe. Let's take a listen to how Germany's state broadcaster Deutsche Welle is covering the Italy controversy. Italy says it's seeking a way out of China's sprawling Belt and Road initiative. Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney's government says joining the infrastructure program four years ago under a previous government had done little to boost Italian exports, while Chinese exports to Italy had soared. Rome is the only major Western power to join Belt and Road. Critics say it's a tool for China to spread its geopolitical and economic influence. And Italy's defense minister was even more scathing. He called the decision to join the Belt and Road atrocious. So again, you have this very, very negative narrative, but nowhere is the skepticism and cynicism about the BRI more pronounced than in Washington, D.C. In fact, it's one of these things where nobody has anything positive to say about the BRI. Nothing. It is really one of the very few issues that red and blue Americans actually agree on. There is nothing redeeming whatsoever about the BRI and China's purported motivations behind it in the views of most people in the DC Beltway. Let me give you a quick sample of what that actually sounds like. Here are a few of the opening remarks by Michael McCall, who's the Republican chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee during a hearing that he convened two months ago on the BRI. The BRI <clears throat> seeks to develop a system of PRC-controlled infrastructure, energy, transportation, trade, and production networks across the globe. The BRI initiative encompasses over 150 nations with a significant focus across Africa and the Indo-Pacific, and a growing focus on Latin America, the Caribbean, and even Europe. This debt trap diplomacy is saddling developing nations with unsustainable debt, which China then leverages into increasing its influence. BRI initiatives often lock countries into reliance on PRC systems 
leaving countries vulnerable to exploitation by the PRC. Specifically, PRC uses its investments across strategic sectors to secure PRC exclusive or near exclusive to and control over dual use infrastructure and programs that can be used in conjunction with the PRC's military civil fusion program to help the PRC project course of power into critical global regions. Long live the debt trap narrative. It will never die, Cobus. There it is, front and center in Washington in a hearing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I know quite a few of the staff members on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. They know that this is not a thing. They actually subscribe to our newsletter, listen to our podcast. But that message has apparently not gotten up to Chairman McCall. But uh, nonetheless, it's good politics in the United States. And it's fueling this perception, again, that the BRI is in trouble and that Chinese lending has fallen so far to the point that the BRI just isn't relevant anymore in the eyes of many people. Again, we've seen these charts where it peaked in 2016 and has just been a steady kind of solemn slope downhill from there to the present day. A lot of people have speculated, in fact, that the BRI is actually being replaced in some sense with many of the new Chinese programs like the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, the Global Civilization Initiative, and maybe even things like the New Development Bank and the BRICS and all these other things. The BRI has just become too toxic even for the Chinese. This is, again, according to some of the narratives. However, the data actually tells us something different. BRI spending has indeed gone down a lot more in these past few years than it has previously. That part is indisputable. And gone are the days when China would spend $6 billion to build a railway in Kenya or a port in Sri Lanka that made absolutely no economic sense. But we are now in the era of small or beautiful. And that's something that we've talked about a number of times on this show, that the BRI has changed. It's evolved. It's not these big mega infrastructure projects that it was. And I think in many people's eyes, still in Washington, London, Brussels, and certainly in New Delhi, that is the mindset that they still have on it, that it is the old BRI, BRI 1.0, and BRI 2.0 looks a lot different. So the new BRI, we'll call it 2.0, seems to be focusing on a few specific areas, including green technology, renewable energy, telecommunications, and logistics. And we got some new data earlier this month to back up what these trends we've been hearing about. The Green Development Finance Center at Fudan University in Shanghai released its half-year report on BRI investment, and it reveals some very interesting trends. Let me just give you a few points, Cobus, before I get your reaction here. First, China's energy-related engagement in the first half of the year was the greenest of any six-month period since the BRI's inception in 2013. That's absolutely fascinating because it's actually showing that money is getting to the places where it needs to go in terms of pushing this green transition that we've been talking about. Also, there are fewer loans that seem to be happening, but more investments. A record number of investments took place in the first half of 2023 with about 103 deals worth $43.3 billion compared to around $35 billion in the same period last year. Fewer loans are being done and symbolically, just the optics here, Total BRI spending from its inception passed the trillion-dollar mark for the first time. So, Cobus, some huge discrepancies between what the data tells us, those narratives in the U.S. and Europe, and what people in the global south are saying about the BRI, especially in places like South Africa. One of the issues with the BRI, I think, is that it's always been studiedly vague. For a long time, the BRI was essentially a large idea with a bunch of different projects, you know, kind of stuffed under that heading, some of which kind of retroactively. And it was always this thing that could be this and that and also this and also that. And, you know, it, it evolved over time. So it is a little interesting to, in the first place, hear people reduce it to just an infrastructure rollout, which it, it was always a connectivity rollout where infrastructure was one of its pillars. And then, you know, kind of looking at a changes in financing and being like, oh, well, infrastructure is dead, China's dead, BRI is dead, bye. Like, you know, that kind of, you know, conclusion. I 
think what people are being kind of tripped up by is this inherent kind of ambiguity that underlies the Belt and Road Initiative, which means that it isn't going away, even if China's international development engagement is increasingly crowded with different acronyms and different initiatives. What is, I think, interesting from the Global South side, particularly is the shift in focus to green energy and green development, simply because that really is a place where China is both very strong and where demand in the Global South is both is very strong as well. So one of the things in South Africa at the moment, we're waiting for more details on a bunch of new cooperation agreements that seem to be emerging between South Africa and China, where green energy will probably be pretty high on the agenda. And I think that will be a real litmus test of where the Belt and Road is now and what role green energy and other related kind of issues will play there. Well, let's get a perspective on where we are in the Belt and Road and some of that data that I talked about in terms of the first half report. Uh, Christopher Nedipal is the founding director of the Green Finance and Development Center at Fudan University, the organization that put together those reports. Christoph has been following this story and this issue for many, many years. He's one of the foremost experts on the Belt and Road and is specifically on where the money is going. Christoph, thank you so much for coming back to the show. It's great to have the chance to speak with you again. Eric, it's wonderful to be back. Kobus, it's wonderful to be back. And uh, thanks so much for the invitation. Well, we're so thrilled to have you back to be able to talk to us about the report that you put out on the first half results. There was some revealing information in that. Before we get into the details of the report, I'd love for you to kind of pick up where Cobus left off in terms of those competing narratives about the BRI and the different perceptions that people have. You spend a lot of time in Europe. You're in Germany right now. You also spend a lot of time in Fudan University in Shanghai. Um, you see this from a number of different sides. Tell us a little bit about your take on the different competing narratives that are underway right now to shape and define the BRI as it approaches its 10-year anniversary. So I think there's definitely a tension that uh, I'm also very well aware of. And I think that tension has also allowed the Belt and Road Initiative to evolve over the last years. Um, when you start such a large and ambitious project like the Belt and Road Initiative with uh, big promises and uh, originally also very big pockets, um, it is uh, would be very surprising if there would be no controversy around it and if there would be also um, not some projects that might not go as well um, as, as planned. Um, so we have seen an uh, evolving Belt and Road Initiative also within China. I think one of the issues that you already mentioned previously is a stronger focus on the green aspect of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, there's, um, I would be very surprised uh, if there would not be a very strong focus on green um, also at the Belt and Road Forum that is coming up later this year. And so this, this green aspect has evolved also due to kind of international developments um, and also kind of a realization of China that green is the, the kind of an important trajectory for global development. I think the other aspect that is really evolving um, is a stronger capacity to manage economic and financial risks from the Chinese side. There have been a number of projects that have gone sour there have been a number of protests as well against Belt and Road projects. There have been white elephant projects that potentially are underutilized. And so these projects don't necessarily make sense for the Chinese developers or for the Chinese financial institutions. And not, kind of, they don't not only don't make sense, but uh, they are also often loss making. Um, and uh, I think this risk management has really improved. And then there is this idea of small and or uh, but uh, beautiful. Um, I think uh, there's a number of different different. Yeah, they have it every single way: small and or but beautiful. But we get well. Let's go with small and beautiful for now. Exactly. Small and beautiful. And I think this is also a change of kind of tact um, from the Chinese side to understand that kind of how can we um, kind of implement projects faster? How can we make sure that we need kind of the requirements and the needs of the people on the ground and reduce in some ways, again, our financial and uh, also political risks in these projects. So these are all evolutions over the last 10 years, which I think are very positive to also react to some of the not unfounded kind of challenges that the, that the Belt and Road Initiative had in some places. 
Christoph, one of the points made in the report is that is that the BRI has now breached the symbolically important one trillion dollar level. Does that though mean that that BRI funding is starting to creep back up again? Uh, because you know, for a while we've seen this, you know, as 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 you know, the the people that that Eric was was um, quoting before, you know, a lot of people refer to that that kind of idea that it was that the funding peaked, uh, you know, in the mid twenty tens and has declined since then. But I mean that decline. Has to a certain extent been as, as overlapped with the COVID crisis, you know, kind of which brings its own its own kind of set of complications in, in relation to China. So, where is the fi- the BRI financing standing now? Like, what would be the next chapter on that graph? We definitely saw kind of in our data the peak also um, 2016 to 2018. As you say, there was a slowdown, also COVID-induced, and also global economy was not doing well before um, COVID as well. So we kind of like to say COVID was to blame for um, some economic issues, but we had economic issues before that. The Belt and Road Initiative kind of almost uh, combining the question that you did, you just asked, Hobus, and uh, the previous question has also evolved with all of the new initiatives that are coming. What we're seeing is less development finance, which the Belt and Road Initiative potentially and likely included much more um, in the beginning and supported by China Exim Bank and China Development Bank and moving more actual economic business models, financial business models to finance projects. The Global Development Initiative, meanwhile, is much more targeted at providing development finance, um, where also the policy banks and particularly the development banks or development arms of the policy banks will play a bigger role. And what we're seeing, which is, I think, very interesting is what she also mentioned that we the increase in investments um, so more equity stakes in overseas projects so the equity um, side actually in the first half of 2023 already reached the, the same level as in 2020 and 2021 altogether and almost the same level as 2022 so really kind of the equity side, the investment side is strongly picking up, which is also very much in line with the Belt and Road Initiative is becoming much more economically, much more um, kind of risk management on the economic side to provide financial value also for the Chinese side. And to that point on the comparisons between the Belt and Road and the GDI, that's the Global Development Initiative, the GDI is far more aligned with the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. So that's more about human capital development than it is about, say, hard infrastructure in many respects. So that's why I think that comparison breaks down quite a bit when some people say, well, GDI is replacing BRI. They're they're two very different things. I want to run my contrarian view by you just to get your take on it, because this is what I've been kind of telling other people. And I want to see if you think that I'm completely bonkers or if there's something to it. Now I'm curious. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I actually think that, I mean, this thing is only 10 years old, which in terms of major government policies is pretty young. It's it's really in an infancy. I mean, you look at programs like PEPFAR in the United States, that's a 20, 25-year-old program. One of the complaints about some of the U.S. policies, and I'm not trying to do a whataboutism here, U.S.-China thing. No, I'm just familiar with U.S. policies, and they're quite staid. They, they're, once they get kind of locked in, they're very difficult to change because of the way that the funding cycles are set up. But here we have the BRI announced in 2013. You have this orgy of spending in the first three years. like, And I was in China at that time, and I remember, you get a free port, you get a free you know, airport. If oh, this is a BRI project, double it. You get more money than you ever needed. I mean, it was just uncontrolled. Xi Jinping then starts to kind of recognize that this thing's getting out of control. I think the SGR and the port of Ambandota in Sri Lanka are the high watermarks in many respects. He, he deploys some of his anti-corruption forces to start cracking down on it. By 16, we start seeing the pullback leading into the pandemic, and that's where we have that mountain slope on the spending chart. Then in 2021, the debt sustainability issues become real, so there's literally no more carrying capacity of most developing countries. So the Chinese kind of pull back and say, well, what are we going to do? At the same time, China's domestic economy is running into massive problems. They don't have the free capital anymore just to, you know, throw it off into Bolivia or Ecuador or Peru the same way that they did 10 years ago. 
So they've evolved this now into a line with their own strategic priorities, which of course is telecom, connectivity, green technology, and renewable. That aligns with their domestic priorities. The small part is critical because of the debt sustainability issues in developing countries. And so I think in many respects that the Chinese have actually been quite innovative in adapting this thing at a pretty rapid clip. I mean, basically every two or three years, this thing is being reinvented to be something different. And in terms of large major government policymaking, my contrarian view is that's kind of impressive, actually, on one level. I'd be interested to hear what you say. Again, I'm not trying to flatter the Chinese. I'm not trying to, I, I have to put these disclaimers out every single time you say something nice about the Chinese, because then I get these emails saying that I'm a CCP panda hugger. That's not the point. We're trying to have a discussion here. But I'd like to get your take on on, on this. I don't think it's so contrarian. One of the pictures that I use to help myself understand China is the Chinese saying, which means as much as crossing the river by touching many stones. And for me, that symbolizes this flexibility of kind of uh, where's the water going, um, what, which stone is, is touchable, what can we do, rather than um, kind of building this very solid bridge that once it's kind of planned and it's kind of running. I think this flexibility is also visible in the Belt and Road Initiative that is evolving, that sees different players coming into the Belt and Road Initiative, that sees different policies to address some of these concerns. I mean, we had a debt sustainability framework, sovereign debt sustainability framework in for the Belt and Road Initiative already in 2019. So these debt topics that you just mentioned have been on the agenda at least since 2019. So that was before the COVID crisis. And of course, through the COVID crisis, there has been much more debt issues globally, and China is a big part of the solution, but definitely others need to be part of the solution as well. Um, everybody's in their way trying to also work out what that means. Again, to your point, China has had very little experience in 2020 when the debt crisis really hit, how to deal with the debt, um, and they have tried to in improve their knowledge. They have tried to be engaged as far as kind of there was political willingness in some of the international forums, we still haven't solved the debt crisis, but it's also uh, nobody has solved the debt crisis, not to kind of point fingers at anyone. And I think in a, in a, in a more contrarian view, or hopefully not so contrarian, everybody could contribute to the solution. Everybody's waiting a little bit in this multilateral game, kind of almost prisoner's dilemma. Nobody wants to go first, and you can only solve the um, puzzle by solving everything. And so everybody's just waiting until the puzzle is perfect to, to try to solve something on a bigger scale. So I think on all scales, China is trying to learn and adapt. Um, also another kind of don't... I think there are many problems that need improvements. I think the green aspect, we have still a lot of problems despite agreement or kind of the announcement of no more coal. Um, there is still a lot of fossil fuel engagement, including coal engagement um, in the Belt and Road Initiative. So not everything kind of that has been generally announced, it has been kind of where we've seen progress is 100%. But again, we have to put that into a global perspective. And nobody from the global north has been absolutely clean, green, um, to put forward fully sustainable development agenda and fully sustainable development finance. So I think this is kind of, one has to take everything with a, with a grain of salt. One of the really interesting data points that you identify in the report is that, that for the first time, investments have surpassed loans as the main form of, you know, kind of how, how these, these BRI deals are done. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. Like, why do you think that, that, that trend is happening and, and who is driving it? So that's interesting indeed for us. By the way, I also want to put out one caveat. You mentioned the 1 trillion mark. This is according to our data. This is not official Chinese data. The official Chinese data uh, uses some definitions which I am not, uh, I'm, I'm actually trying to abstain from. They use, for example, countries along the Belt and Road Initiative. I use countries that have signed an MOU with China um, to cooperate under the Belt and Road Initiative. So they use different countries. So that 1 trillion mark will not be 
reflected um, in any official uh, statements from the Chinese side. This is our data. It's still relevant and very consistent with what we've been doing over the last years. But to your question about this uh, investments, what is really interesting, what we've been seeing already in 2022 and now also in 2023, is a strong engagement in some of the technology investments from non-state-owned enterprises. So usually over the first eight, nine years, most of the Chinese BRI engagement was through state-owned enterprises, and particularly the large engagement, the large tickets. They, usually the state-owned enterprises, get then funding through loans from the policy banks, from the Chinese policy banks. That is then guaranteed by the Belt and Road Initiative country, so sovereign guarantees. And what we've seen over the last 18 months in particular is a strong engagement of the non-state-owned enterprises or the private enterprises in also green technologies and, and green manufacturing. So a lot of battery um, production. Um, we had last year the big uh, investment by Cattle, the largest battery producer for cars and also other use cases, um, which was a ginormous investment in Hungary. We see a number of other investments in Serbia in the car industry. So these private um, players are taking a much larger role in kind of investing in the Belt and Road Initiative. Also kind of <laughs> to the $1 trillion market, the definition, um, because I had a long discussion with somebody from Chinese media about this. And uh, they asked me, it's like, what do you, how, kind of, how can we define Belt and Road Initiative investments? And I was like, for me, it's quite simple. Um, a Belt and Road Initiative investment is a Chinese investment or kind of uh, financing or uh, through loans in the Belt and Road Initiative. There is no official term, no official kind of definition, what exactly is a Belt and Road Initiative engagement. So the way we uh, categorize this is every Chinese engagement in a Belt and Road Initiative country, where Belt and Road Initiative country are those that signed an MOU with China. And, you know, that's just a piece of paper. It's not legally binding. It's not a contract. So when you talk about MOUs, is that really something that we should hold up as a legitimate measure only because there's nothing binding about it? I think you mentioned discussion with Italy. So it seems kind of <laughs> pretty binding. Most international contracts between governments have international law, which is very difficult to to implement if, if it's breached. And so on MOUs, I think it seems also important enough for uh, the Italians to discuss it very publicly, what it means and whether they want to get out of it. And so an MOU, I think, has more power than not having an MOU. You know, but you see, we've talked about Italy. Nepal is another country, for example, that has said, listen, guys, we're just not benefiting that much from it. So we talk about 150 countries. Not all are benefiting equally from their engagement with the BRI. When you looked at your data for the first half of the year, did you see some countries benefiting more than others and others falling off uh, quite a bit from the radar for, from Chinese spending? Yeah, it's always the case. And I think we should not also mistake half a year data for a long-term trend. That's kind of too short for, for, for this. Overall, most of the countries don't get Belt and Road Initiative uh, investments in, uh, in this half year. And the advantage of the Belt and Road Initiative, every country will have to decide for themselves. Brazil decided not to join the Belt and Road Initiative, despite Lula being in China earlier this year. I heard a very conscious decision because the question is, what advantage does it bring to be a Belt and Road Initiative country versus not being a Belt and Road Initiative country? And for some countries, it's clear that it has a benefit. For others, maybe similar benefits are possible without being a Belt and Road Initiative country. So that is kind of, for me, too much politics to handle. <laughs> Speaking about politics, do you have any kind of like sense of how BRI politics or politics around the BRI has shifted within China? Because, you know, obviously China's going through all of these different shifts, like, you know, like tough economic times, very high youth unemployment, a lot of these kind of domestic issues you know, simmering. And at the same time, you know, kind of what we know from the past is that there's frequently these kind of, you know, moments of resentment, you know, when when in, within China, when large funding packages are announced to global south regions like, like in Africa. So do you get any kind of sense of like how the political climate around the BRI has, has shifted in China? I think we're seeing this shift in the data that, the uh, policy bank spending, so the loans, um, is not as important anymore. So I think the 
the, a lot of the private uh, companies that are investing in Belt and Road Initiative countries are seeing actually economic opportunities. And it might be that they don't see kind of that they see better economic opportunities to invest abroad because Chinese domestic economy. It might be that there is just kind of a strong appetite to be closer to the customer. It might be that there are trade-related restrictions and trade-related issues that they um, try to circumvent or prevent. So I think overall, this discussion is becoming, I think, less political and more economic. And so if the Chinese believe that there is an economic opportunity by investing in a Belt and Road Initiative country, that's fantastic. Of course, there are still the political projects. There is still um, large infrastructure um, project discussions, um, including in railway, including um, in mining, which often also require some government-to-government -government negotiations and support to get these deals. But overall, I think the discussion is positive in a sense that seeing the for, for the Chinese to see its overseas footprint being enlarged and kind of it's the success of some of the projects and particularly the commercial projects really paying off, I think it's contributing to a good discussion for the BRI. Now, we've fallen into a little bit of the trap here in terms of discussing the BRI purely in terms of infrastructure as it relates to roads, bridges, ports, and that hard infrastructure. But the BRI operates on a number of different levels. There is the Health Silk Road, the Digital Silk Road, the Maritime Silk Road. There is... Um, There's a Space Silk Road as well. Space Silk Road, that's right. And so it's operating on six or seven different levels. Are all of those still active or are some being weighted more than others in your understanding? I have the feeling some are more weighted than, and than others. I follow, of course, very strongly the green aspect of it. And that is not only infrastructure, but again, also related to mining, where this year saw a very large engagement in mining and particularly those metals that are very relevant for the green transition. Then, of course, also the manufacturing. So it's not just infrastructure, but I've focused particularly on the green aspect. So I'm not fully aware whether the uh, space and health and the other silk roads are still continuing as strongly as when uh, kind of the original plan. In relation to the green expansion, as you touched on earlier, you mentioned that about 55% of energy-related engagement along the BRI in the first half of 2023 was green, like with 41% being solar and wind, with another 14% in hydro. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the rest. So the, the rest, I assume, is like a mix of coal and oil. And does any of that kind of breach Xi Jinping's commitment to stop funding coal-fired plants overseas as part of the BRI? So the rest is actually oil and gas engagement. and the. Oh, so there's zero coal, actually. There was zero coal in 2023 that we have in our database. There was the announcement earlier in January this year that the, the coal-fired power plant in Pakistan will go ahead uh, after some back and forth around this uh, coal-fired power plant. But it seems uh, there is still not the final signature being made and the construction has not started. So we. But I think they grandfathered that one in, though. I think because it was the negotiation started before Xi Jinping's announcement, a few projects were grandfathered in, is my understanding of it. Exactly. So this is the, the, the idea of the coal exit was that those projects, so the coal exit in September 2021, so that's now almost two years ago, that projects that had received a financial close would go ahead and new projects would not be announced and not be implemented. Now, we saw a number of projects related to coal and also um, coal-fired power plants um, implemented in Indonesia last year. Those are captive coal-fired power plants. That means uh, these captive coal-fired power plants um, provide electricity and potentially also heat for industrial parks rather than providing the electricity to the broader grid. And so I think that is potentially a loophole that uh, they try to carve out. Mm, but in the larger scheme of global coal-fired power, these one or two plants matter, but not as much as the domestic Chinese continuation of its coal expansion. Which this year, so far in the first half of the year, if my understanding is correct, they've added 21 gigawatts of new coal power in China. Coal imports have gone up quite a bit, in part because of the very hot summer. Water levels are down in many of the rivers, so the hydroelectric dams are not running as much. This is great news for you, Cobus. 
because South African coal exports are up, Indonesian coal exports are up, and Russian coal exports are also quite strong. So <laughs> China, again, speaks out of both sides of its mouth on this issue. On the one hand, it is this kind of professed green leader in, in sending all this green technology around the world. On the other hand, 21 gigawatts of new coal power is a lot of coal power. And again, I use the metaphor of it's like peeing in one third of the pool. It <laughs> doesn't really matter if the Chinese are putting the stuff into the air or if it's happening in Zimbabwe or South Africa. It's still going in the air. And so at the quantities the Chinese are doing it, it's a little bit disconcerting. And I think there's legitimate reason to hold the Chinese to account on that and for those, indis those discrepancies. By the way, same discrepancies we see in Germany. Kobus, you are going to be a very popular guy when you go to Germany and start railing on the Germans for all their, <laughs> their carbon use, and then also in the United States as well. Yeah, I, I'm always I'm always the skunk in the room pointing out like historical <laughs> colonial issues. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, ne I'm never I'm never very welcome. <laughs> Somebody needs to do it. Somebody needs to do have it. a great time in Germany, Kobus. Have a wonderful time. So. Yes. So, Christoph, let's kind of start winding down our discussion here, looking towards the second half of the year, but also going forward. And people in Washington and Berlin and London say, what is the Belt and Road? Where is it going? Christoph, what do you tell them? So I think a lot will be kind of become more evident at the Belt and Road Forum later this year. Do we know when, by the way? I mean, we've heard a lot about later this year, but do, have they announced a date? Do you know? I don't think it's publicly announced. Um, okay. It's going okay. to be... In a, I was just wondering if I missed something. As far as I know, it's going to be in October. What I hear is there's a lot of interest from different countries to actually attempt the Belt and Road Forum. Um, the discussions are uh, ongoing. Um, what uh, themes the Belt and Road Forum will have. Um, so it, it seems, again, that the green, the green aspect will feature very prominently. So the Belt and Road Forum, I think, will be a litmus test of the appetite for the Belt and Road Initiative going forward. I mean, as you call it, the Belt and Road Initiative 2.0 or maybe even 3.0. My perception is that a lot of the projects that kind of have been backlogged and um, could not go ahead um, during the COVID crisis are now kind of moving forward. There is a stronger recognition of kind of that we need more investments in some uh, the green aspect, um, but also the opportunities continue to come for Belt and Road Initiative countries to attract also manufacturing into the countries, which is hugely important for employment in the countries rather than just importing goods produced in China. So I think these are all, I think, interesting trends that we have been observing over the last, I would say, 18 months that I believe will accelerate. What we always still see is these large infrastructure projects in rail or other large infrastructure projects that are of strategic value or of a very high visibility value that kind of will go ahead if there is very strong relationships. But also, of course, there must be a business model behind it. This that's not going to happen that these projects don't have any, any money to pay for it. So one of those very strategic projects, for example, that we have been seeing is, of course, the Laos Railway. It's a, it's a very strategic project also for China. So I think these are interesting projects that we also believe will go ahead. And from the smaller projects, I think anything can go ahead. The, the Chinese companies are just very well attuned to what the needs are for ICT development, um, road development, road improvement. Um, and all of these projects, um, the Chinese do have a very strong competitive advantage or edge at least and are willing to compete for smaller and larger projects. And this is really something that... Uh, when we talk about the Western alternatives, the EU, the US alternatives, this is not something where kind of me, myself being a German, the, the West has no good alternatives, either in terms of speed, um, to, of kind of reacting to, to a tender in the speed of implementation, but also the willingness to really engage in some of the smaller projects. Therefore, I have no strong feeling that the Belt and Road Initiative is dead. The communication around it might evolve, as always, but it's kind of the idea that China is kind of engaging very strongly economically through investments and also through kind of loans in the world is definitely um, life and kicking. There you have it. It is not dead evolving, small, but beautiful. So Christoph just laid out the small part and then the beautiful part of those political 
ones that make sense strategically. Another one, by the way, is the Vietnam-China railway that is starting construction as well. So China investing heavily in its near abroad in Central Asia and here in Southeast Asia. Christoph, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through all of this and to explain some of the research that you've done. Thank you so much for the work you've done at the Green Finance and Development Center at uh, the Fun Heist International School of Finance at Fudan University. Christoph Nedipal is the founding director of the Green Finance and Development Center and also an associate professor at Fudan University in Shanghai. Christoph, thank you so much again. And if people want to follow what you're reading and writing and to connect with you, can they find you on, I'm going to call it now, this is the first time, Kobus, I'm saying this, can they find you on X? They can find me on X, but I've been very inactive on X. So I think a good way to follow me is actually on LinkedIn, and there's also a follow uh, option. Fantastic. I will put your LinkedIn profile, not your X profile. We're going to change this now, Kobus. X is going out of fashion here. <laughs> it just sounds weird to say it. I don't know, but okay. How can a guy flush away billions of dollars of brand equity so quickly? But uh, well, that's another podcast that you can listen to. Christoph, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Before I leave, really, uh, thank you um, as well, uh, Eric and Kobus. Always a pleasure to be here and always a pleasure to listen to your podcast. Looking forward to many, many more episodes over the next months to come. Kobus, we've been speaking with Christoph for years. It's always insightful. I think the key takeaway, he's echoing what a lot of our guests have said over the past year is this small or beautiful, and it is changing. The BRI today is nothing like what it was five and 10 years ago. I don't hear that in a lot of the discourse in Washington. We certainly did not hear that out of Mike McCall on Capitol Hill. We are not hearing it even from Global South stakeholders. There was an article a couple of weeks ago that William Ruto, the president of Kenya, is going to call on the Chinese for more infrastructure spending to help build roads and railroads. And you're just thinking to yourself, really? Really? Are you guys not paying attention to anything? That William Ruto's government can't carry large debts. The Chinese are not in the business of doing aid in infrastructure in large numbers. They're just, I don't know, I don't get it why in so many African countries in particular, they're talking about the BRI as if it's five years ago. And we know for a fact that the spending in, in Africa has dried up in many respects on BRI. And it really speaks a little bit to some of the China literacy gaps that people aren't keeping abreast of the profound changes that have happened in the BRI over the past three to four years. Yeah, definitely. I think that there's a, there's a few issues. One is that yeah, you know, kind of sometimes policymakers are just behind, or they just you know, kind of like would prefer to talk about what they want to talk about rather than what research is telling them. I think you know, in the African sense, it reflects it reflects, I think, to a certain extent, how the development landscape was completely transformed by China. You know, um, to the extent that even if it's a long shot, the first name that comes to people's minds when they talk about infrastructure is China now. I think, but. I at the same time, it's also a kind of a mixed bag because, you know, for example, like in, in today's newsletter, I covered, you know, mentioned that there's apparently new energy put behind a, a long planned uh, railway in Guinea. Uh, that's supposed to connect the Simandu um, iron ore mine to the coast. And there, a, a bunch of, or a consortium of Chinese companies apparently signed a deal with both Guinean government and the Australian company Rio Tinto to possibly work together on, on a rail line. So those announcements still come up. You know, it's not like it's not like it's some kind of official zero rail policy that's now been put out, you know. So on, on the other hand, I think in the case of, of, of Global North stakeholders, frequently there it's kind of a case where you can't wake up people that pretend to be sleeping, right? Kind of like no matter what you say, no matter what kind of like data you bring to those U.S. senators, they're not going to want to hear it. They you don't want to hear it. Because that's how the politics works at the moment there. So I think there, there's a different aspect, different issues at play there couple different things here. So one of the things that we're going to be doing later this year is creating an interactive map of all of the green energy projects that the Chinese are involved in in Africa specifically, either as aid, in loans, as contractors, or as investors. So we're going to have it interactive and you can filter it based on different metrics there that you want to look at, different filters there. What I think this is going to do is be very sobering for people in Brussels and Washington, because they've talked a lot about 
competing head-on with the Chinese and the BRI specifically with the Global Gateway Program as well as PGII. I'm never... What was PGII again? The Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. Oh God, I can never remember those acronyms. <laughs> I liked B3W better. It was easier. It just rolled off the tongue <laughs> a little bit easier there. But okay, so PGII. So you hear a lot of talk in Washington and Brussels about these initiatives, but one of the things, again, that Christoph brought up was the ability for the Chinese to move fast. And I want everybody to keep their eye on one particular U.S. deal just because it's a good benchmark for the speed that the U.S. moves at. And it's that deal that the Americans did with the Zambians and the Congolese in Lusaka. Remember, I think there was this picture of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken signing an MOU last fall, and they're going to create a battery supply chain initiative. And the whole idea is we're going to cut China out of the process and we're going to do it ourselves. That was an MOU. In that case, the MOU had no legal backing of any kind. We have not seen any update to it. We have not seen that evolve into a contract. We've not seen money put onto it. Nothing. And I think it speaks a little bit to the difficulties of projects getting through the U.S. and European bureaucracies in a timely manner. And I don't necessarily blame individuals. I blame their bureaucracies. What Christoph was pointing out about this new evolution of the BRI is that by being small, it allows them to move even faster. And the Chinese had a reputation for speed already in terms of implementing development finance projects and, and infrastructure projects. I think now that we're in this smaller, beautiful phase, you're going to see it go up even fast. And that's what this interactive map that we're building for the third quarter of this year is going to be really very instructive, I think, is to show just how many projects have been done across Africa. And they are in the small phase. They're in the tens of millions phase, not in the billions of phase. That's something I think is very interesting. And that speed question is so imperative for Global South political leaders because they've got to deliver results within the single electoral cycle. Yeah, I mean, what's also very interesting is there's all of this political pressure, I think, you know, all of this political will from the Chinese government, because they are sensing that many kind of world powers are trying to kind of keep China out of things now, you know, kind of like keeping China out of supply chains, for example, is now like a, a mainstream talking point, you know, in, in, in Western capitals. So China, I think, is feeling under siege and is reacting by expanding through a process of, you know, kind of moving manufacturing to other countries in order to avoid sanctions, for example, there's a lot of kind of pressure, I think, on, on Chinese companies to move internationally. And one of the interesting data points that cropped up this week in our newsletter has been that there's this Chinese company that's inter that, that used to focus on making air compressors, and they're now moving into green energy in a big way. And one of their kind of planned investments is to buy into geothermal energy in Kenya, where they are planning to set up a big new geothermal power plant in, in, in Kenya. And that, I mean, that is not a small, small investment that like, I think, I think the price that, that I mentioned that, that, that I saw mentioned was $11.3 billion. So I mean, it's a, so it's a huge investment. But it's an interesting kind of indication of how the kind of green focus in China is now shifting its investment in Africa, particularly towards countries like Kenya that already have such not only very strong geothermal capacity, but is already largely running on geothermal energy. So it's very interesting to see how all of these private sector companies are finding these different niches in Africa, different from the niches that that other companies found before that tended to lean a lot more into hydrocarbons. And part of the motivation for these private sector companies is because the Chinese economy at home is really not doing very well. So you've talked about how the kind of shrinking world for the Chinese, the Chinese will not be major forces anymore in the United States, in parts of Europe. And let's not forget, Kobus, it's not only a Western thing. They are being shut out of Japan, South Korea, and India as well, in many respects. So it's also in Asia, too, where they're facing a lot of these challenges. So it, again, we always frame this in terms of a China-Western thing, but here in Asia, the tensions are real. Not to mention, I mean, obviously the Philippines is not a, an important market for the Chinese, but boy, the tensions are just skyrocketing. So China's facing a lot of pressure in its own backyard, as well as with the West. And, and I think so that's just an important point to bring up there. But again, I come back to this question that you've raised over and over again, is this ability to execute. And that's what I'm going to keep coming back to is delivering tangible results 
on the ground, and we have to evaluate the different players not by the rhetoric. And in that sense, everybody's talking a great game, but it's actually what's delivered. And in that sense, I still, if I was a betting person, I would say I'll put my money on the Chinese in terms of delivering actual results. Let's get some final thoughts to you before we head off. Okay, so leaving India out of out of the question for the moment because you know that is a complicated issue. But it's a hot mess. On the one hand, of course, being locked out of Europe and North America and Australia is is disastrous for China because those are extremely rich markets. However, they also just in terms of population, actually not that large. You know, I mean, obviously these are large countries. Yeah, but that that doesn't matter though, Cobus, because the buying power of one American is worth that of huge amounts of people in the global south. That's true. But at the same time, you know, for these Chinese companies, that's also a much more competitive environment, right? So comparatively, the rest of the global south, while poorer and, you know, kind of, and, and, you know, and, and finding it harder to finance things, also have much, much, much more kind of demand for some of these products, particularly green energy. And also, it's also a field that's much less constrained, much less competitive. You know, like you don't see these, not yet anyway, you know, kind of a full kind of deployment of Western financing and, and technology to kind of in, in, in a green energy race in, say, Honduras. I think the Chinese are getting a kind of a first mover advantage that to a certain extent also reflects this kind of lack of snobbery in China. I think, you know, kind of a China's happy to work in all of these countries, even if countries have bad reputations or if they just look too small, you know, which I think isn't necessarily always true in, in the case of Western companies. So it's a very interesting moment to see how they pivoting. I don't think it's snobbery. I think it's just what's the profit margin? It's the kind of pragmatism, yeah. It's a pragmatism. I mean, Apple and Ford and GM and American companies look at uh, what their profit margin is for what they can sell a car in Kenya is, and they compare it to the amount of energy and time that it would take to sell a car in, I don't know, Spain or Japan. Well, they don't sell cars in Japan because the market's closed for them, but in other parts of the world, and they go, you know what? We have limited time, limited resources, limited people. Why would we waste our time at a 2% profit margin when we can get a 20% profit margin somewhere else? Well, exactly. And and that is the experience of the entire global south, right? It's like as an embodied waste of time for, for the global north. So for 2%, 2% is not worth their time. I mean, I'm making a number up. But again, even big companies have limited resources. So I don't necessarily blame them, but we can't then turn around and say they're being snobs because they're making the best interest for what their shareholders want from them. Yeah, I guess. But that kind of calculation becomes a little bit different if you're talking about selling iPhones, for example, versus, you know, kind of green energy power plants you know kind of there i think the calculation is a little bit different and the benefit is, is a little bit different and 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 them then thinking of it also just simply in this kind of like narrow terms of like shareholder investment is that it's itself a form of limited thinking right kind of like it's you know it, it, it limits what they're willing to engage with of course from a from profit perspective but it also limits their global influence and in that sense china is kind of eating their lunch, you know, kind of like China is the go-to person for this kind of development. I mean, that might not be something that the global north is jealous of because I don't think they don't care. But, you know, kind of, but still, China is, I think, moving far ahead with that. Maybe, but here's another thing that it depresses the Chinese. There was ambitions one day that they were going to have truly global brands that would rival Facebook and Google and YouTube, and that will never happen now. There will be no global tech brand. Well, there's TikTok. Well, there's TikTok to some extent, but you cannot make, I mean, and particularly in hardware, you know, I mean, TikTok, actually, you're right, but TikTok is a great example, and Temu is another one. But without full access into the US and European markets, where it, the verdict is still out as to whether or not they are going to be able to stay there forever, TikTok is being banned by some states and potentially could be blocked by the United States. Who knows? But it is going to be increasingly difficult for them to assert themselves as global brands if they don't have access to the Indian, Japanese, U.S., and European markets. That's a reality. So they have no choice but to go into the global south. So you talk about desperation. It's a desperation move on their part to go into the global south, too. Where else are they going to go? Yeah, you know, but then, of course, the, the global south is happy to have them, you know, so we'll see. Sure, absolutely. But here's the fundamental problem, though, of the U.S. and European initiatives, because all of their efforts are predicated on private sector engagement. 
And the debate that you and I have just had is exactly what's blocking the private sector in U.S. and Europe from going aggressively into the global south because they go, what's in it for me? What's in it for my shareholders? If I go into Africa, then I'm not going into Southeast Asia or into more lucrative markets. Okay, Southeast Asia, of course, being middle income in many respects, not lower income. So that is the fundamental flaw of the American and European initiatives where the Chinese have state-backed financing, which relieves some of that risk. So that's one of the other reasons why I think the Chinese are so successful and assertive, because they have that backstop that American and European companies simply don't have. Yeah, you know, and um, it's interesting to see then how that, yeah, as you say, like from a Global South perspective, you know, like it's, it's, it's interesting to see how that translates into influence over the long run, you know, and, and I think I don't really have a, a kind of a concrete answer on, on how it will, but but it will, it's, it's important, I think, to track, to see how, how yeah, it develops. We yeah. don't know. Because on the one hand, like from, and, and again, I'm, I'm speaking from a, from a very Global South perspective here, but like, you know, kind of the, 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 there is this kind of interesting kind of distinction that one sees where on the one hand, like one knows, you know, obviously you, the US, the Europe and so on are, are very strong and powerful and important, but on a kind of a lived basis, they sometimes feel very far away, you know, from kind of like lived experiences, I think, in the global south. And that I think, you know, they're, they're, that form of influence is shifting, but it's a very kind of squishy metric, you know, it's like, it's almost it's very difficult to track. And, and it depends a lot on the particular country and the particular issues. I wouldn't read too much into this corporate presence as a benefit to soft power because you've seen this over and over again. Well, you'll have people who will, at 9 o'clock in the morning, go to the U.S. Embassy, throw tomatoes at it, tell them they're the worst in the world, they're the almost awful thing, and then go around the corner and line up for a visa with a Starbucks in their hand wearing Levi's jeans and you know going to get McDonald's at 12. So those can sit side by side one another. People don't necessarily associate the brands and the politics and their own life objectives. Those are sometimes all discrete from one another. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, less those kind of soft, which you're right, like, I mean, there are those kind of soft power contradictions. For me, I mean, more like a, just a, a feeling of receding, you know, kind of like they just feel distant, far away, not interested in us, and therefore, for sometimes not, we're not interested in them, you know, that, that's uh, sometimes a combination. That's going to be some parts of the world and not others, because I can tell you out here in Southeast Asia, we don't feel that the Americans are far away at all. <laughs> well, the Americans are very interested in Southeast Asia, you know. Exactly. And so this is the new geopolitics of the moment here. And so, you know, we have, again, they're talking about Biden coming to Vietnam. And I mean, like soon in, in the next month or so. And then I heard today, again, rumor unconfirmed, take this as you want but that she might come to Vietnam before Biden. Yeah, well, she is in South Africa next week, so... Welcome um. to the new world that we're in. So we have here in Southeast Asia, where the great power competition is unfolding, lots of attention. Again, I'm noticing in parts of Africa that the attention deficit now is starting to really become quite serious, that people just aren't talking as much about it, people aren't as engaged. This talk of Biden going to Africa is faded Remember that? That was really big at the end of last year. He may go, but oftentimes they'll go to Africa towards the end of their tenure, the end of their term. Remember Obama went at the end of his term? But by that time, it was like, okay, whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's not consequential. So something to think about, that if he waits right till the end of his term, and again, we're going into an election season, so the longer this thing goes, the less likely it's bound to happen. But interesting that they can move very quickly when they want to and come to a place like Vietnam. So we are the pretty girl at the dance right now, getting a lot of attention. So, uh, okay, let's leave our conversation there. Great to have a conversation about the BRI. We're going to have more of these discussions in the fall around the Belt and Road Forum, around the anniversary. It's critically important, mostly for our Global South stakeholders in the audience who, again, are a little bit behind the times on where the BRI is oftentimes. I mean, just what I'm picking up in the news and from what leaders are talking about, they're still thinking that they can get some of these big loans and they can do some of these big infrastructure projects. Again, William Ruto is a great example. I know his team does not listen to our show. I wish they did. I think they would benefit enormously from it, listening to a guy like Christophe, because you know he would then not say these things. But 
We're going to have these conversations a lot more coming up in the next few months. We're also going to be talking a lot about the geopolitics of the BRI as well, because you can't separate the two, as you heard at the top of the show. So let's leave the conversation there. We'd love for you to join our community of readers like Christoph, by the way, who reads us every day. We're very grateful to him for it and his support for the work that Cobus and the entire China Global South project team in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East are doing every day. We really appreciate your support. We cannot survive as an independent media organization without our subscribers and our Patreon supporters. So if you would like to support the work we do and get access to all of the fantastic analysis, the reporting, the data sets, the chat tools that we've got, amazing resources, all behind the paywall, but we would love for you to join us. Come to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. You'll get 30 days for free just to see if you like it. If you are a student or a teacher, email me, eric, E-R-I-C, at ChinaGlobalSouth.com, and I'll send you the links for a discount code of 50% off the subscription rate. So let's leave the conversation there. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China Global South podcast. For Cobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.